Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the mighty, the mighty Not Safer Walks. Uh, here with Kennedy Cooper, Leia Rose. Say hello. Hey. How are we doing? We're doing well. We're doing better today because uh, we wanted to do this, like, really early in the month. And, like, I screwed it up. Uh, I was supposed to talk to Nabila's campaign manager and, like, really nail down our confirmation. And it got a little scrambled. And the day that we originally were scheduled to record ended up being, I think, Nabila's mom's birthday or something to that like extent. So we we're like, okay, can we do this closer to Christmas? And <laughs> it worked out. Nabila Islam is here. Uh, we've hung out one or two times, but this is our first time doing like semi-live audio content together. Hi, Nabila. Hi. Thanks for having me, and I'm really glad we were able to reschedule. Ever a problem. Oh, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful. We're, we're glad for having you. And for people that don't know and don't like follow us on Twitter and for all of that discourse, uh, Nabila Islam, uh, running in Georgia's 7th Congressional District, it's a very peculiar district. <laughs> I guess most of them are. Nabila, welcome to the show. Uh, for people that like don't live in our state, can you kind of describe what the 7th District is like and where you're at and what the lay of the land is? Sure, no problem. So the 7th district is a it's a majority minority district. So it's northeast of Atlanta. Um, so it's the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And the suburbs up here have gotten really competitive. Uh, we were able to flip the district next to, next to us, losing McBath. So that'll just give you an idea of where it is. Um, and so it's comprised of two counties. It's Southeast Forsyth and Gwinnett County. And so Southeast Forsyth makes about 15% of the district. And then Gwinnett County is about 85% of the district. And just to give you some quick stats on Gwinnett, um, it happens to be the most diverse county in the Southeast and the fourth most diverse county in America. So there's like a very large African-American population around 21%, 20%. Um, it's uh, Hispanic and about 17% AAPI. Um, I live in Lawrenceville and my state senator is the first Bangladeshi to ever get elected to the state legislature. And so um, we have a lot of diversity down here. And last year, it was the closest federal election that a Republican won. And that, um, he only won it by 433 votes. And uh, this time around, he has chosen to retire after serving about 10 years, and that's Republican Rob Woodall. And so I'm running what is now an open seat, and with the right candidate, it'll flip blue. I mean, it's kind of a crowded primary. Uh, Carolyn Bordeaux is is running. Brenda Lopez is in that district. So when we talk about like what it takes to be the winning candidate, uh, what do you think that you are bringing to this particular congressional race that maybe is unique that people should think about when they think about you running in this district? So I'm actually the only candidate that grew up in this district. Like I'm a product of the Gwinnett County Public Schools. No one else can say that. Um, You know, I grew up in Norcross and Lawrenceville. I have a shared lived experience with the folks in my own community. And, you know, I also am, um, the median age in Gwinnett is about 35. So there's a large young population here. Um, I really believe for a district like this, we need a candidate that not only reflects our values, but also our diversity in order to expand the electorate. And so I'm actually the only progressive that's running um, in this race right now that's running on policies that are going to actually uh, effectuate real change in our communities. So I think it's important to actually talk about policies that people will resonate with and inspire, motivate them to go vote. 
And we've talked about like expanding the electorate on this show in the context of other people who are running for Congress and just national elections as a whole. People that are in Georgia know that the Georgia electorate is expanding, but it's also contracting uh, because like we've got a governor that is trying to kind of contract the electorate by force. Can you tell people that like don't know about some of the actions that are going on both from the governor and both you know, in opposition to Brian Kemp, uh, just in terms of giving people the voting access, because I think Georgia is much more of a purple state um, and maybe more in the veins of a Virginia or a North Carolina than people who are like from outside the South and see like a solidly red state. It's a lot closer than people think. Oh, absolutely. This is not a deep red state that people uh, from outside of Georgia like to call it. It's definitely a purple state. I think what we're seeing right now is that Republicans are realizing that they can't win on their policies, so they're resorting to cheating. Uh, most recently, the Secretary of State, or we can call him, what I like to call him, Secretary of Suppression, decided that he wanted to purge 330,000 people off the voter rolls, mm-hmm. which includes 25,000 people in my own district. That's not acceptable. That's, that, that is clear voter suppression. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. tactics like these that prevent people from coming out to vote. I believe, you know, your vote is your constitutional right, and there should not be an expiration to it. What is your campaign's plan to sort of do whatever it can to enfranchise as many people as possible? Obviously, we know that Georgia is in a precarious state with people's votes. So do you have any specific plans that might affect your district specifically or the state in general? Um, what we're doing in our campaign is that we've set up um, volunteer captains all throughout the district um, that are, that's going to be in charge of um, informing people about where their precincts are, uh, making sure that if they need to register to vote, where they need to go. Uh, we're going to be actively um, letting people know they need to check their registration um, and making sure that they haven't all of a sudden been purged. But just being very active and letting them know that these are the election dates. And so we're going to be communicating with them in different uh, languages. As I mentioned, um, I live in one of the most diverse districts in the country. And a lot of the reasons of why there's been lower turnout in the general election is that we're not reaching out to a lot of these voters in a way that they feel comfortable communicating. And so uh, whether that means translation services, um, you know, translating things into Spanish, Korean, uh, Bengali, Hindi, um, those are some of the things that our campaign will be doing differently that hasn't been done before. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, uh, when you're in sort of toss-up districts, it is really important to have an effective GOTV campaign. And from what you've said, it definitely seems like that's a coherent part of your strategy. Most definitely. So for some people, they might not see it this way, but you probably understand that for a lot of people, they put things at risk to vote. And uh, also, sometimes people put things and sometimes a lot at risk to run. Can you talk about like your political history and how you decided to run? So, yes, um, running for office is something that's really difficult. Um, it's uh, something that's been reserved for wealthy people. <laughs> There's a reason that Congress is about 40 million. I'm not 40 million, sorry. 40 percent of Congress are millionaires. And so it's, it's cost prohibitive to run for office in the first place. Um, I've been, you know, draining my savings. I originally thought that I was going to take a part-time job uh, when I was going to run um, back in February. And I realized that in order to give 
my district the full attention they deserve. Like I needed to do this full time. Um, as you've noted, this is a very competitive primary. And so I've made some fiscal adjustments to my budget. Um, I, I was paying about $300 a month in student loan in, for my student loans. And then I had some health insurance as well that I was paying for month to month. But that health insurance in of itself did not cover me in a real way. For example, if I were to go door knocking mm. and I got hit by a branch or a car, um, it wouldn't have covered my ambulance, it wouldn't have covered my hospitalization. So I just kind of felt like I was throwing my money into an abyss. And so I've canceled my health insurance. I've put my student student loans in forbearance, uh, which means I will pay them at a later date. But currently I'm accruing interest, which will capitalize at the end of my forbearance period, which means I'm actually going to owe more money on them. So I've been, I've had to do a lot of uh, moving around on my budget in order to run, but I think more people like me need to run. We need more people from working class backgrounds that Mm -hmm. understand uh, the issues that people go, that they face on a day-to-day basis. I think there's a real disconnect right now um, in Congress and uh, what's happening on the ground. And so, you know, growing up in Gwinnett, part of the reasons of why I actually started to, I, I ran for office was when I grew up in Gwinnett County, I never saw anyone that looked like me at the table. I never saw our diversity or our values reflected, whether it was our mayors, our city council members, school board, county commission, state house, state senate. Um, our congressperson, like it was all Republican, white and male. And that just struck me as super weird. And uh, I, I just didn't understand why we didn't have more representation. And so that's why after college, I got, you know, jumped into political campaigns to elect more Democrats. And, you know, this is a district that like we have about 135,000 people that don't have health care. Gwinnett County has the most deportations, it has the largest incarceration, incarcerated population, and it's never had a candidate or representative that's been advocating for policies that are going to change any of that. And so I decided that I wanted to, you know, give my district a voice. And that's why I threw my hat in. Yeah. So you talked about working on a lot of different campaigns and tell people a little bit about your history, um, working for others and how that gave you sort of an ideological or strategic bearing for your own run and, and what that inspired in you. I started campaigns around, what, 2012? And growing up in the South, I've always been taught that a certain kind of candidate was electable. And that candidate was usually white. They were usually centrist. They were someone that that played to the middle and, you know, pandered to Republicans, basically running on Republican-like campaigns and platforms. And so that's a losing strategy. It hasn't worked. Um, You know, when Republicans go to vote, they vote for the real Republican, not the fake Republican. And the pandering just waters down our message. I think it's important to be our unapologetic selves. But I'll talk about some of the campaigns I've worked on. Um, When I first started working in democratic politics, I worked for a progressive grassroots candidate. His name's Andre Dickens, and he challenged a 12-year incumbent and unseated him, something that's never been done before in about a decade. After that, I worked for Jason Carter in 2014 when he was uh, running for governor, and unfortunately, we lost that race, and that was a really bad year for Democrats. And then I had the opportunity to work for Hillary Clinton. And what I have been taught is that someone like her was the most electable candidate, someone that could defeat Donald Trump. And after we lost the election, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do in order to make a real difference in our democratic process. Um, I had the opportunity to go work for uh, the DNC, the National Party. Um, they had you know, issued out an MOU talking about how they wanted to hire more diverse staff. And for me, that was very important because working in democratic politics, I was usually a unicorn. No one ever looked like me. There wasn't a lot of people of color. Um, and I think it's important to have diverse 
staff because you don't if you don't have diverse staff that understand working class issues or issues in black and brown communities, those issues won't be translated over into um, policies um, on for candidates. And so when I worked at the DNC, I realized that our communities are more of a footnote in the overall strategy. I So I quit the DNC and I, I worked on a congressional and I was really, what really inspired me was 2018, seeing Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, some of the youngest mm-hmm. women, the first Muslims, candidates that ran on unabashed progressive platforms and, and they won. And it showed me that people like me can run for office and that we should be empowered to run for office. And not only that, we should be able to advocate for policies that are going to um, effectuate real change in our communities. And so that's why I'm running on a very progressive platform on Met- for Medicare for All. I'm running to increase the minimum wage to living wage at $15 an hour and, you know, and then tying that to inflation thereafter. And I'm running on comprehensive immigration reform and criminal justice reform and a Green New Deal. In terms of like people that you've seen in Congress, is do you consider uh, those women to be your model for how you would govern once elected? Or do you have like older candidates you saw when you were first getting into politics, like a, I don't know, a Russ Feingold or someone like that, that you look at and go, oh, I want to model myself after that person. Basically, who do you look to as sort of an inspiration for your theory of uh, voting? I actually didn't really have anyone, you know, that I really looked up to in a real way prior to 2018 in Congress. You know, I've had my role models that I've grown up with. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. was someone that I really looked up to. But in Congress, I don't, I I can't think of anyone that really struck me as someone that I was very inspired by at, at at that time. But now, you know, I love the way that uh, Rashida and Ilhan and AOC and Ayanna Presley are speaking truth to power about their communities, um, that they're bringing issues that people haven't talked about in a real way to the front and giving them a platform and speaking up. And I think it's very powerful what they're doing. And I think that's something that needs to happen more. Um, and I love the fact that because of 2018, there are candidates that I'm running with right now all across the country. They are doing the same in terms of being unapologetic about the issues that uh, are important to them in their communities. Now, a lot of conventional political wisdom would hold that, like in a purple or toss-up state district like Georgia, in order for Democrats to win, you have to embrace sort of a blue dog platform where you kind of concede to Republicans on, you know, small, tiny issues that don't matter, like, you know, abortion and that sort of thing. Like all things. <laughs> yeah, everything. Like-, like anything that affects the working class even slightly, just those things. Yeah. Anyways. Anyways. So how uh, how do you think an unabashedly progressive platform, as you called it, with the Green New Deal, with um, $15 an hour minimum wage, how do you think that's going to be better for flipping a district than the traditional blue dog rhetoric? Well, the traditional blue dog rhetoric hasn't been working. <laughs> Listen, I think I've, I've spoken about this at length a lot on the campaign is we can't run on Republican light platforms. Republicans don't pander to Democrats in order to win, uh, win races. I don't understand why we feel we need to do the same. I feel like there's a level of Stockholm syndrome growing up in Georgia that we need Republican votes in order to win. 
you know, if that's the strategy, you've already lost. And I think in a district like this, what we need to do is expand the electorate. Talk about the issues that are affecting people on a day-to-day basis. You know, in in my district, if you're making $7.25, you can't afford a two-bedroom apartment. The median rate for a two-bedroom apartment is $1,244. If you're making $7.25, you're already $100 short. That's before healthcare, but that's before childcare, that's before groceries. There's 135,000 people in this district that don't have health insurance. They can't go see a doctor. That's unacceptable. That's a quarter of my district. There are archaic immigrants immigration laws in Gwinnett County. That, that's why we have the most deportations in the entire state. Uh, it's called 287G. It's basically letting ICE come into our communities and separating our families and deporting us. It's unacceptable. I think if we talk about the policies that are actually affecting people, uh, the issues that are affecting people and t- championing policies that are actually going to change what's happening in their lives on a day-to-day basis, people will be inspired and motivated to go out and vote. I think for far too long, we've run these campaigns where we don't say anything because we're too afraid to be hit in a general election. I think we can't do that anymore. We have to be bold. Yeah. One of the things that's really mind-blowing about 287G is that it literally costs the district money. Um, for people that don't know, like 287G basically deputizes local law enforcement and basically makes them work as like immigration officers. And of course, the big, really gross thing about it is like, how can you tell that someone is an illegal immigrant? I mean, anybody can take an airplane and stay in a country after their paperwork expires. It really ends up being a policy that encourages local law enforcement to harass people with black and brown skin. Like, oh, you don't, you look like you shouldn't be here. But given that, knowing that those kind of policies end up costing the district money, A lot of people that support laws like that actually don't care about the economics because they have their own animus that leads them towards supporting those policies. Uh, I know that you've talked a lot about economic equity. What does the concept of economic equity mean to you? And what do you think it takes to get people to support their own economic interests, sometimes in situations where the policies they support directly impact them in a negative way? So economic equity to me is about eliminating the wealth and income inequality in our country. And what I'm doing with my economic um, equity platform is advocating for policies that is going to change that. So like I've mentioned, increasing the minimum wage to a living wage, starting at $15 an hour, pegging that to inflation thereafter, making sure that our tax dollars are coming back to our local communities instead of subsidizing um, large corporations like Amazon and Boeing, who we've given billions of dollars to in subsidies and they pay $0 in federal taxes. We have so many small businesses that have just even recently popped up in Gwinnett County of minority-owned businesses, small businesses that are struggling to find the capital that they need in order to flourish. I think what we need to do is return those tax dollars instead of giving them to uh, large corporations, bring them down to small businesses. Like when you communicate it that way, like people are like, oh, well, that makes sense. I get, you know, my tax dollars are coming back to my local community. Um, And that way they'll have the tools to flourish and pay their workers a living wage. I think we need to have a fair tax policy. You know, right now we just gave a trillion dollar tax break to the wealthy and corporations. I mean, that's unacceptable. We need a fair tax policy where everyone pays their fair share. That's why, you know, I support a wealth tax, a Robin Hood tax, and making sure that corporations and wealthy people are paying their fair share and that the working class isn't, you know, burdened on. Yeah. I think a lot of times when we talk about expanding the electorate like we were earlier, there's sort of a weird perception about non-voters, who they are, why they're not voting now. 
things like that. And I think in the minds of a lot of particularly like sort of centrist liberal types, it's like just a cranky person who doesn't want to vote anymore because they're upset or something. And it's maybe over something petty, which is not really the case. So maybe you could talk a little bit about who are the non-voters in your district and how do you reach them? So in the general election here last year, the electorate, the general turnout is 35% of it is AAPI and Hispanic. The actual turnout was way, way less than that. And so I think what's happening is that we're not reaching out to these communities, these Hispanic communities, our Asian communities in a real way. Um, And even just talking about the issues that affect them on a day-to-day basis, whether it's, you know, our immigration policies that is hugely affecting our diverse communities here. Um, I think it's also, you know, we have to reach out to them in a way that, uh, that they're comfortable with. And so whether that's, you know, language translation services or making sure we have folks who are knocking on their door that, you know, speak Spanish speak Korean, speak the same language that they're speaking in. And so I think a lot of these people would vote. It's just that no one's ever reached out to them in a way um, that they would feel comfortable in. Yeah. So when we talk about those communities, you know, a lot of those people who are in those communities don't want to pop their heads up because there's a fear of interacting with the government on any level. And part of that is just because like there's a immigrant community in Gwinnett (laughs) slash Forsyth that not li- not necessarily are immigrating undocumented, but know someone who does. And there's a, at least in my experience, a really deep suspicion between those communities and between law enforcement. And 287G obviously makes that problem worse. Um, can you talk about what your picture of immigration reform looks like from a, a enforcement angle and from a restorative justice angle? Policies like 287G have no business existing in the first place. They've gone around terrorizing our black and brown communities and separating uh, mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters and deporting them unjustly. And so one of the main things that I'm going to do when I get to Congress is make sure that this archaic immigration law is banned. Uh, what we need is a, a real path to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented people in this country. And we also need to make sure that we re-implement and re-strengthen DACA, DAPA, and TPS orders. I think it's important that as you know, we're going around in the community and campaigning that it, you are right, There are there is some distrust with the government. I think we have to do what we have to do is rebuild that trust and tell, you know, show people that we're advocating for them, that we're trying to get ICE out of our communities. I think ICE itself is Donald Trump's secret police right now. They're going around just wreaking havoc um, and not being held accountable. Um, I really believe that it, overall it needs to be dismantled in a way where we, you know, significant, significantly defund ICE. Um, for example, at the border, we're sending ICE agents, Border Patrol agents you know, at the border instead of sending judges to process asylees. Um, we need to repeal the asylee ban. And I think so. those are some of the things that I'll be advocating for when I'm in Congress. Um, do you have a specific vision of what accountability looks like for the individuals who made the orders about the treatments of immigrants and particularly children coming across the border? During this administration, uh, maybe after you know 2020, there is a complete rollover of power. To what extent do you feel like there should be any sort of official punishment or sanction uh, on the people that made those orders and executed them? I think there was a gross abuse of power of what's happening right now. Um, putting children in cages is unacceptable. And, you know, 
when hopefully there is a rollover in power and we have a new president and new administration, I think we need to go back and, and look at who the key people were in making sure that um, these policies, these gross policies were enforced. As far as accountability, I'd have to think about what that would look like, but they they should definitely be held accountable. It can sometimes be like tough to uh, square the idea of physical accountability for abuses of power versus how we think of restorative justice for people who commit crimes, whether they are, you know, nonviolent offenses or marijuana offenses or things like that. Where do you personally draw the line, just not in even any particular case, but your own ethical system in terms of making sure that there are consequences for actions that are detrimental to the community versus uh, sometimes being punitive or destroying people's families or communities through the legal system. Do you think of that as a a case-by-case basis, or do you have like a general philosophical outlook that you apply to situations um, like these and others? So I think this has to be a case-by-case basis. I believe that we need to be less punitive. You know, I think what's happening with people being locked up for, let's say, having marijuana on them, cannabis, that's something that needs to be ended. Like, we need to legalize marijuana at the federal level. Um, I believe that we need to abolish private prisons and detention centers and that we need to end mandatory minimums. We've blown through like a lot of discussion of how things are working locally. Uh, I'd like to kind of shift to a national level. Obviously, like one of the main things that I think everyone, uh, at least in the Democratic Party, is thinking about is the environment. The Green New Deal is a huge part of, I think, a lot of the Democratic Party platform. I think if we were to look for people that aren't in support of it, they would be in a minority in the party now. But I do think there are a lot of disagreements on exactly what a Green New Deal looks like and how aggressive it should be. So can you sort of share your personal priorities, what a Green New Deal should look like or a massive environmental economic action? And how should it be balanced against what the needs are of the economy? So I think a Green New Deal would be beneficial for our environment and our economy. Look, we are, it's, this is no longer climate change, right? We're in a climate crisis and we need to advocate for bold, aggressive policies. Um, I believe that we need to, as fast as we can, move away from a fossil fuel-based economy and move towards a 100% renewable energy-based economy. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the state of Georgia is the number one polluter in carbon because of a coal plant we have in Macon, plant share. But the thing is, the state of Georgia is also top 10 when it comes to producing. uh, We receive the uh, most sunshine um, and we're in the top 10 states for that. And so we have a real opportunity to capitalize on that and, you know, create uh, solar power plants and create thousands of jobs. And so I think we can not only battle the climate crisis, but at the same time, we can also create thousands of jobs all across the state and inside of this district as well. And at the same time, we need to be making sure that we're protecting our frontline communities who are going to be affected by the climate crisis or are being affected by the climate crisis and making sure that, you know, they have access to clean water, they have clean air. And so I think it's important that we advocate for, you know, a Green New Deal. I think this is this is something that our country, not just our country, but the globe, the world needs. And so uh, we need to be a leader on this issue. And I feel like once we are, the you know, the whole world will follow. 
the harm of the climate crisis isn't something that's in the future. It's happening right now. The air quality in uh, Australia, because of the bushfires, is like 4,000 on a scale where about 100 is and what's healthy. Like People are being harmed right now, and we need to do something about it right now. It's not, you know, oh, you know, there'll be some victims in the future. Mm-hmm. We got to do something about this. And it's good that your platform kind of tackles that. As a general principle, do you believe that utilities should be publicly owned? Um, that's actually something that I'm looking at right now. I um, eh, have not decided as of yet. That's fair. How do you feel about like worker cooperatives and unionization and things like that in general? Well, I think wealth inequality was at its lowest uh, when our unions were at, strong- were at its strongest. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we definitely need to strengthen our unions and get rid of work to write laws um, at the federal level. Um, the transportation grid. Uh, I know that, you know, the city of Atlanta and its surrounding enclaves have a lot of problem with transportation. Uh, How does transportation impact the environment and what policies do you think would improve transit in the Atlanta area? You know, if you've ever driven Atlanta, you already know that the traffic there is terrible and its suburbs are very similar. We have very, uh, very bad traffic and we've been trying to expand transit into Gwinnett. And um, it hasn't been able to pass the ballot for various reasons. I think what we need to do is have more options for light rail in our communities so that people have, you know, options of being able to take public transit instead of being in their cars four hours a day because they're stuck in traffic. That's something that I'll be advocating for uh, strongly at the federal level is making sure that we're sending federal dollars to uh, make sure that we have a transportation system that will support all different types of um, modes of transportation. Just transferring uh, from the environment to, I think, the other really major national debate. How do you feel uh, about our current healthcare system? Uh, I know a lot of people think of Obamacare as something that there was a lot of political capital invested in. Uh, to what degree should we be looking to you know, adjust Obamacare and make it more effective for people? And to what degree should we be looking to uh, replace it uh, with something that is bigger and broader? I think Obamacare was, you know, a good first step. Um, And just to share a personal story of mine, I uh, have been fighting uh, private insurance companies since high school. Uh, My mother was a order puller at a warehouse uh, where she, she worked there for 14 years. And because her wages were so low, she worked longer hours. And after 14 years of picking up boxes and putting them on trucks, she eventually uh, herniated two discs in her back. And her insurance company denied her the benefits that she had a right to uh, when, she was in, when she was trying to get her uh, medical surgeries paid for. And so I was in high school when this happened. And I just remember being like, this isn't right. And then figuring out a way to get a lawyer. I, you know, translated everything for my mother. I was on the on at, I was at all the meetings. I was on all the phone calls with her. And luckily, we won. But had we not, we I like as an adult now, I realize that we very well could have been part of the two thirds of families in this country that go bankrupt because of medical debt. I'm advocating for Medicare for all, a single payer healthcare system uh, where we eliminate private insurance companies, and that you know everyone has access to you know being able to see a doctor. Like a cost should never prevent you from care. We've talked a little bit about cost. Obviously, who pays the cost uh, for a universal health care uh, system is one of the things that I think the left clashes on. Uh, can we talk a little bit about the idea of means testing? Obviously, there are a lot of plans that are that ensure universal access to care, but they have certain criteria for who's getting the access and at what level and uh, how much in a way to 
try to keep it affordable for people without eliminating the cost. And many people consider that a very efficient way of dealing with healthcare. But uh, how do you compare that to something that is free at the point of service that may cost more upfront, but has longer savings, maybe in a long tail? I think having a universal healthcare system that is free at the point of service will make it so that you know, we have a lot of people that don't go see a doctor and wait at the very last minute because they can't afford to go see a doctor. So they're going to emergency rooms. I think by having a universal healthcare system, you know, the way that we pay for it is I like I really like Bernie Sanders' model where we have an incremental tax increase. And if we do it this way, look, we're getting rid of our premiums, um, our unstable premiums, deductibles. Um, we're also getting rid of, you know, administrative paperwork that is costing us right now in the billions. And so moving towards this model would make it cheaper in the first place. And then we sustain it by paying for it through a small tax increase. Seems reasonable to me. Now, I don't know if you've heard, but there's it's something of a news item lately that the president was just impeached. Wait, really? Yeah, I, I know. It's I, It took me by surprise, huh. too. I'm just hearing this from you. This is big news. Wow. Yeah, I know. Anyways, there's been a lot of criticism about the way impeachment was being handled or is being handled by Pelosi in the senses of only introducing articles when the Bidens were threatened and in the sense of the limited nature of the articles that were presented. So what do you think of the way impeachment was handled and how would you have done it differently? So I think she could have brought impeachment on earlier. I think the argument was that um, there were seats that we had just won that she felt that would lose if we didn't have something that candidates in swing districts could talk about, about that was like a real problem of why he should get impeached. But I feel like we waited too long. I mean, like, like this, this guy has been authorizing for kids to be in cages for for a very long time. I think he's been doing many gross violations. And um, look, I'm glad he got impeached, but I thought uh, the articles could have been stronger. But I, I feel like, you know, we waited a very long time. But look, I think overall, I'm really glad that most everyone in the Democratic Party agreed to impeach him. And um, hopefully the Senate does his thing. I'm not too confident that they will and remove him, but he should be removed. Right, right. So what do you think the priorities of a new president should be in 2020 in terms of, in particular, kind of restoring things to a, a better state or hopefully restoring them to a better state than they've ever actually been in, period? There's a lot of liberal talk about, you know, restoring normalcy, uh, how to go forward from Trump into a new sense of political stability. Oh, I, I'm so excited for that day. Um, I think uh, it will happen very all? soon. Uh, yeah, I can't take another four years. Um, <laughs> I think the next president needs to be bold in the policies that they are advocating for. And I believe that starts with health care. That starts with a Green New Deal. That starts with, you know, combating the climate crisis that we're in and, and making sure that the millions of people in this country that can't see a doctor have the ability to do so. I think these are issues that are affecting our day-to-day -day lives right now. And I think those are, you know, two of the top two priorities that I think that should be addressed immediately. Um, I also think immigration reform has been put on the back burner for so long. Um, this is something that's been affecting my district that I would advocate for, I would advocate for in Congress, but would hope for, for a president that would um, make sure that's one of the top, you know, three, four issues. There are a lot of people running for president right now. Uh, do you have a favorite yet? I, I'm advocating for, I, I, I do have a favorite. Yes. 
You know, I'm more in the Warren Bernie camp, and that's not a favorite. That's, that's multiple. Not favorites a favorite. <laughs> They're gonna do a fusion dance. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I. So here's my thing. I want a president that sees us, right, and sees our data, sees that we're, you know, the day to day issues that we're facing. That sees our communities, our black and brown communities, our diverse communities. And there's one candidate in particular that I think has been doing a stellar job in doing that and reaching out to, you know, diverse communities all across the country, and you know, creating a diverse coalition all across the country, and making sure that they actually have diverse staff as well. And, you know, I think right now I, I really like what Bernie Sanders has been doing. Um, he's been, I thought you were going to say John Delaney. <laughs> I think, I think he, oh you know, I, I think he's oh been God. doing a really great job. You know, I also, you know, really like how Elizabeth Warren has been communicating, um, about her policies. Um, I know that there's a huge you know, contrary to belief, there's actually a lot of progressives uh, that live in Georgia. We just we've just never had candidates that have really run on progressive platforms. And so there's a huge group of Bernie and Warren supporters in the seventh district. And so I think even more so that has showed me that there are a lot of these folks are ready for a congressional candidate who's going to advocate for uh, the same policies as well. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this episode's going to come out around the holidays, and we already have one cast member of the classic Home Alone 2 movie has been impeached. Which cast <laughs> member do you think will be the next to be impeached? Perhaps Tim Curry or Macaulay Culkin? I don't know if Nabila's even seen Home Alone 2. I barely remember that movie. Um, okay, so was it, I was embarrassed, but I only remember Macaulay Culkin. I don't remember who the other people are. Also, <laughs> God damn that's it. fair. That's fair. Listing all the members who have been in Home Alone 2, I don't even remember that movie. I don't remember it at all. Like, I know he was in it for like two seconds. Like, isn't it, isn't it supposed to be like a millennial movie? It came out of the no, 90s. Me and Nabila are both being erased from all of this meme discussion, and I'm glad <laughs> someone that is on like, my like, side. In Kevin accidentally boards the wrong flight, and he goes to New York. Yeah, I don't remember that at all. Oh, and they forget the kid. They forget the kid, and Bro, then he's there. I don't actually remember what most of the actors did. They were all either his parents, or they were thugs menacing him, or they were Donald Trump. <laughs> oh, hey, um, Nabila, what do you what do you need from people who are listening to this? Um, I would love for you to contribute and sign up to volunteer. So you can do that at nabilaforcongress.com. That's N-A, be like boy, I-L-A-H, for Congress, F-O-R, uh, congress.com, and uh, would love your support. Oh, and then you can also find me on Instagram and Twitter at nabila, F-O-R-G-A-0-7. And we're going to link to all that in the show notes. So whenever somebody like looks at the podcast on our website, it'll all be right there. So if you're listening to this, you know, just go on the website. It'll all be there. Anything else, Ken? I think we've covered it. I think that's it. Nabila Islam, thank you so much. You have been a wonderful guest. And it has been just a delight to talk to you about so many interesting and important topics. No, thank you so, so much for having me. I, um, I enjoyed speaking to all of you. We've been talking about getting you on since Thanksgiving. So I'm glad that like before Thanksgiving. So I'm glad that we were able to like nail this together. And I hope that uh, we'll hang out with you again, like as we go into the primaries or maybe after you win the primaries, 
Because the seventh, you know, sometimes we have candidates on that are like long shot candidates. And those people are important too. But I think this is like a really winnable seat. If you've ever actually been to those neighborhoods, there are a lot of people who are engaged in politics in the vein of like how it's affected their life. And they're really looking for somebody that is like outside of the conversation as it's as it's existed uh, and are kind of looking for a champion. And every time that I talk to you, I see the ability to do exactly that. Thank you. Thank you. This is a flippable district and it, and it deserves someone that's going to actually advocate for policies that, that are going to help them. And if you're listening to this, like you have the ability to like turn this from like a 49.9 to a 50.1 because it could be one of those situations. Definitely. We got to expand the electorate yeah. if we're going to win this race. Yeah. More non-voters than voters. Hell yeah. So that's another wonderful episode of Not Safe from Wonks. This has been great. Uh, I always love a chance to talk to candidates, talk to politicians, see where things are hopefully headed for the country. Right. So uh, I'm Brandon Buchanan. Leia Rose. I'm Kennedy Cooper. Thank you so much, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye-bye.